I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of November 14th, 2016. On today's show, we're going to talk about that election, because who cares about Dak Prescott? Really, Dak Prescott. We're going to talk about coaches and the players in the NBA, how they responded, Bill Belichick and Tom Brady, and a bunch of other stuff. And then uh, journalist Leon Krause will join us to discuss Mexico's win over the U.S., in Friday's World Cup qualifier and what it meant for Mexico, given the immigrant-hating lunatic we've just elected president. Joining me for this podcast slash support group is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Everyone Freak and Four Years of Panic. Hello, Stefan. New editions just out. Just out, retitled for our times. With a new foreword. Uh, and joining us, as always, from New York, is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, We're All Fucked. Hey, Mike. <laughs> it is daily. I haven't, uh, haven't stopped doing podcasts, perhaps to atone for my, the message of my uh, podcast before the election. Don't worry. Come on. How is the Trump uh, anxiety hotline? I feel like there have been some layoffs there. It's been mothballed. That one pot of coffee hasn't been refreshed in a while. People keep calling for it. And the point is not to make you feel better. The point is to convince you all the reasons why Trump hasn't been won't be. And come on, is he really going to be elected? I will say in a bit of self-flagellation, I went and listened to all of them. And I went to listen to see here the times I said, come on, he's not going to be elected. And mostly I gave evidence, uh, tried to convince you, but I also, you know, gave evidence and acknowledged that he could be elected. But big deal, people. The whole point is to allay your anxiety. And that anxiety is now in full flower. Uh, very true. Very, very true. I wrote down in my notes here, no whimsy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have whimsy, but it's not from the NFL. Uh, do, you, do you know? Sure. What is your whimsy? Yeah. Do you know what happened in the Clippers uh, Timberwolves game? I don't know. There was an offer that if a Clipper, this was a Minnesota home game, if a Clipper missed two consecutive oh. free throws, this the fans would get free ice cream. Ice cream. So on, yes. So on the foul line, Clippers, every time they'd make a free throw or simply not miss two in, in a row, DeAndre Jordan, of course, being the prime offender, would yell and taunt the crowd, fuck you, no ice cream. There's your, there's your ice cream. That actually did make me feel better. Yeah. That's the first thing that's made me feel better in days. Thank you, Mike. 
Uh, in our sure. thank you, DeAndre. <laughs> sports can make us feel better. In our bonus segment, we're going to talk about whether sports can make us feel better. Oh, what I, a coincidence! I think we, uh, I think we just got our answer. Um, there has never been a better time to sign up for Slate Plus. Please support our journalism. Join Slate Plus. Hear about uh, DeAndre Jordan and ice cream. Uh, for a limited time, we're offering thirty percent off an annual membership. That's just thirty five dollars for a year of Slate Plus. With bonus segments of this and other Slate podcasts every week and a lot more. So if you have not joined Plus yet, sign up before this offer goes away at slate.com slash hangup plus. So athletes and coaches are people. I feel like Stefan in particular is really into that concept. Mm-hmm. He's been pushing that one hard for years. Mm-hmm. So they reacted to this election. I, as we I've been going did. with the lizard people uh, theory, but go ahead. Hey, all theories are valid. I think we're all mm-hmm. entitled to our own set of facts. So there were many different reactions in locker rooms across uh, this formerly great nation of ours. And we're going to lead with Greg Popovich, the San Antonio Spurs coach. We're going to play a few of these and just react and, and riff off of those. Uh, so let's hear uh, Coach Popovich. Right now, I'm just trying to formulate thoughts. It's, it's too early. I'm still sick to my stomach. And not basically because the Republicans won or anything, but uh, the disgusting tenure and tone and all the comments that have been xenophobic, homophobic, racist, misogynistic. And I I live in that country where half the people ignored all that to elect someone. That's the scariest part of the whole thing to me. Got nothing to do with the environment and Obamacare and all the other stuff. We live in a country that ignored all those values that we would hold our kids accountable for. They'd be grounded for years if they acted and said the things that have been said in that campaign by Donald Trump. Uh, I look at the evangelicals and I wonder, those values don't mean anything to them? All those values, to me, are more important than anybody's skill in business or anything else. So after that circulated, there were a lot of people saying on the social media that Popovich would run for president, Popovich 2020. You know, you would think that that would be ridiculous, but maybe he should run for president in 2020. I actually found his comments after the election to be a lot more trenchant and on point and correct and the reason why the outcome was so upsetting than those of lots of political commentators, I think that we overvalue and maybe discuss too much what sports figures say and expect them to say all of, you know, to have everything come out of their mouths perfectly. But he is an incredibly eloquent spokesman for uh, the things he believes in when he wants to be, which makes it all the more uh, fascinating that he refuses to speak uh, in any sideline interviews. But I thought that what he said was awesome, Stefan. I thought that what he said was awesome too. And the the important, I think, larger point to for us to examine is the context in which these guys are put to make political statements and to speak their personal beliefs. Um, Popovich... Stan Van Gundy, Steve Kerr, I think were the three most trenchant commentators after the election. And they in all, the realm of NBA coaching or just No, a, I think in the realm of sports, <laughs> in the realm of sports okay. figures talking after the election. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that they're, they're in the NBA. You know, other sports, Major League Baseball, clearly player, we talked about this, players, front office people, very reluctant to speak out, um, to have opinions about what Colin Kaepernick was doing or about the election. Football, you know, the NFL is far more concerned about burnishing a particular kind of image, and we'll get into this a little bit later. Um, Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. 
Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. But the NBA, for whatever reasons, and I think these are the reasons, has become associated directly with a progressive and open-minded view of society. And I think that comes from the top. And I think David Stern believed in, had progressive values, regardless of whether he was forcing players to put suits on um, and being portrayed as a dictator inside NBA headquarters. And I think he's passed on or selected someone in Adam Silver who shares those kinds of progressive values and are willing to let their employees speak about them. I don't think it comes from the top. I think it comes from the bottom. I think it comes from the composition of the NBA fan base. Uh, Pew did a survey and they said, what's your favorite sport? 37% of white people said football. Now 35% of black people also said football. But if you look at basketball, it was almost a three to one ratio. 31% Mm -hmm. of black people said basketball was their favorite. And 12% of white people said basketball was their favorite. 538 looked into it and they surmised that the NBA might actually be a minority majority fan base. And of course, the players, it's an overwhelmingly uh, black league. And and then if you take away the number of foreign players, of of American players in that league, it's overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly African-American. So it all adds up to the fact that this allows guys like uh, Van Gundy and uh, Kerr to flourish and they have to understand who their team is. There's another dynamic with the um, between the NFL and the NBA, which is the NBA coaches, you know, oversee 12 guys. It's a really personal relationship. A um, couple of those guys might just be in and out. So you especially like Pop has a core of six, seven players right. that are really, really like his family, not just lip service. Whereas Rex Ryan, giant Trump supporter, can say that he's for Trump. And if you look at the composition of his team, the uh, center Woods broke his uh, leg. So on election day, they had one white starter, the Bills. He was a vocal Trump supporter. Perhaps you know him, Richie Incognito. But uh, one of the, I think, I think it was Vice, but I don't want to miscredit them. They surveyed uh, NFL players and they found that 20 of the 22 black players they asked were voting for Clinton and 21 of 22 white players were voting for Trump. It was actually so a, the, a Bleacher Report piece by Mike Freeman back in October. Yeah. And yeah, 20 out of 22 black players, Clinton, two of 22 black players, Trump, 21 out of 21 white players, Trump. But and, and I think the, the point you're getting to there, Mike, is that it's much harder to form cliques inside an NBA locker room because there's only 14 players there. And if, you know, both leagues, the 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 number of, of African-American players is about 70 percent, 70 percent in football, 75 percent on an NBA roster. But when there are 63 guys on an NFL team, 53 on the active roster and 10 on the practice squad, that leaves a lot of room for division. If there are 14 players on an NBA team and 10 of them on average are African-American and one or two of them are foreign, no, there's not a lot of room there and there is going to be more like-mindedness in the locker room or a climate that fosters like-mindedness. Yeah, you guys are both right. But I would still say that what Popovich and Van Gundy and Kerr said is outside the realm of even what you would expect right. given what we know about the NBA, about the players, and about the fans. Just because you feel a certain way or because you're surrounded by you know, a bunch of black players, that doesn't mean that you're going to go on like a five or six minute rant about what's wrong with this country now that we've elected this guy. Like There are a lot of people in the NFL, I'm sure, who believe the same thing that Popovich believes and just didn't say anything. And, you know, if we could go to Belichick and Brady, you know, Belichick has this letter uh, that Trump read at a rally. Congratulations on a tremendous campaign. You have dealt with an unbelievable slanted (laughs) negative media and have come out beautifully. You've proved to be the ultimate competitor and fighter. Your leadership is amazing. I've always had tremendous respect for you. But the toughness and perseverance you have displayed over the past year is remarkable. Hopefully tomorrow's election results will give the opportunity to make America great again. Best wishes for great results tomorrow, Bill Belichick. I mean, number one, fuck you. Number two, when asked about it later, he just refused to talk about it. He was like, Seattle, we got to play Seattle. Hey, how'd that that go for you, uh, jerk? Um, And then Tom Brady (laughs) has said, my wife says I'm not allowed to talk about politics anymore. There's just this culture 
in the NFL of conformity and we can't distract from, you know, the Seattle game. And even if you believe a certain thing, you shouldn't say it out loud. And in the NBA, there's not really any such thing. It's just such a personality-based league and a star-based league and people speaking out, whether it's LeBron going to a Hillary, you know, campaigning with Hillary Clinton or whether it's a coach, there's like a normalization or an expectation that the players and coaches will talk about what they believe and that there's no kind of cultural presumption that if you talk about politics, that means your like team's going to lose, you know, in Portland because they were too busy thinking about that. But stuff. it's not universal in the NFL. Doug Baldwin, Richard Sherman, they've been very outspoken about social issues, about Black Lives Matter, about this election. Uh, we've got some tape of Mike Evans speaking after yesterday's game. The, he's the Tampa Bay wide receiver. I don't want to, you know, disrespect, you know, the, the veterans or anything, the men and women that, that served this country. Uh, I'm forever indebted to them. But, um, you know, the things that's been going on in America lately, uh, I'm not going to stand for that. Um, you know, when Ashton Kutcher, you know, comes out and says we've been punked, then I'll stand again. But I, I won't stand anymore. All right. So that's funny, but also pretty, pretty interesting. Um, Baldwin said we've allowed our fears and our doubts and our questions about things that we don't know to become more divisive than uniting as a country, as a people. You know, but overall, the NFL does have a repressive culture, and it's reflected in, as we've discussed on the show many times, it's reflected in the structure of the league. It's 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 reflected in how coaches manage their personnel. It's it's reflected in how ownership and the league front office um, wants to control everything below it. Um, so the progressive fringe has always been present in the NFL, going back to Jim Brown and Dave Megacy in the 1960s and 1970s. It's just never been the dominant opinion the way it has been able to be in the NBA. I mean, to me, the demographics are the destiny with both these leagues. Uh, extra credit to note that Popovich, by the way, is from Indiana, graduated high school in Indiana, and is an Air Force vet and lives in San Antonio. So yeah, he does have that shameful uh, he does have that shameful designation of college graduate. So that and also he's rich, so that would make him uh, elite, right? But he's got these other uh, aspects to his personality or his biography that you would say, oh, not the typical uh, is out of touch with the Trump voter type guy. It's not just demographics though, Mike, it's culture of the sport too. You think about how you play basketball. You think about the environment in which basketball is allowed to flourish. You think about the notions of creativity and expression that basketball embodies. That doesn't exist in football. Football is an adult controlled sport from, from most kids. The thing about Kaepernick that's really interesting. um, So Mike Evans, those comments were because he sat during the national anthem on Sunday. And that's why he said the thing at the beginning about didn't mean to disrespect the veterans. The thing that's really interesting about Kaepernick, who did not vote, he had said earlier, um, you know, when he was first getting attention for his protest, that Hillary Clinton should be in prison because of her emails. He is a radical activist. Like he's somebody that you would meet in the Bay Area And you would be like, okay, this is like a California, like super left wing activist, somebody, you know, and when you meet people like that, they're like, I'm not voting because I would just be supporting this like, you know, racist system and white supremacy. Like that is something that is not an abnormal thing to hear in the, you know, left wing circles in the U.S. It's just bizarre because he's an NFL player. (laughs) And so – You know, when you hear somebody like Mike Evans or Richard Sherman or Doug Baldwin speak out, they are a left wing, you know, that's like a conversation you might hear at Slate. It's just weird that you have this like one guy, the guy, and I guess it makes sense that he was the one who took the first step because of all the like culture and conformity in the NFL, that it had to be somebody who is not just like radical for football. It had to be somebody who was like radical for America. So another NBA figure that we should talk about is Ernie Johnson, the host of Inside the NBA. Let's listen to what he said on that show after uh, Trump's victory. I've got kind of a three-part 
take on this after after watching what we all watched on on Tuesday. Number one, um, when this campaign season started, I I felt like I'd been dealt a bad hand. Um, had these couple of choices, and there were trust issues with Hillary Clinton I couldn't get past, and there was this inflammatory rhetoric from Donald Trump, which to me was incomprehensible and indefensible. I couldn't vote for either one. For the first time in going to the polls for 42 years, I hit the write-in button, and I voted for John Kasich. And I left knowing that John Kasich wasn't going to win, but I left with a clear conscience because I hadn't settled. Number two, I'm hopeful. I watched the video today at CNN on what was going on at the White House with Donald Trump, President Obama. I was hopeful and I was encouraged that there will be a difference between the President Trump and the campaigning Trump. And I'm with these guys. We have to give them a chance. Uh, He goes on to say, I'm a Christian. I follow a guy named Jesus. I'm going to pray for Donald Trump. I'm going to pray for all those people right now who feel like they're on the outside looking in, who are afraid at this point. And that's where I had a problem, not with the religious aspect of it, though I do feel uncomfortable when people like Ernie Johnson feel compelled to impose their religiosity on me as a viewer. But the overall naive tenor of his comments is a guy that I presume votes in Georgia, which was a reasonably close state. He chose to write in John Kasich because it would make him feel comfortable. And the message that he's sending, particularly sitting on a set with three black ex-NBA players, felt kind of dismissive to me and incredibly naive about the stakes. So maybe that's just my political leanings, but this didn't feel like a constructive addition to the conversation. Do you disagree, Mike? I do. I think that's sort of hypocritical to say that the three NBA coaches that we cited so favorably, well, that was that was, uh, you know, speaking some version of uh, uh, speaking truth to power or saying things that needed to be said. I disagree. You know, Ernie Johnson's the actual speech of it was very full of platitudes. You know, I Mm -hmm. believe in a guy named Jesus. Maybe you heard of him. And his final decision of I couldn't vote for either. So I voted for Kasich, as you said. Well, that doesn't really move the needle. I mean, if you're so appalled by Trump. But then again, you could say if you're so appalled by Clinton. I mean, I think that basically Ernie Johnson gave a little speech that wasn't as eloquent as the coaches that we cited. And it also politically, when he described the political actions he took, those weren't the optimal to stop Trump from being president. And I think, in fact, most of the criticism lies there. Well, for him to say that the thing that he couldn't get behind with Trump was inflammatory rhetoric, I think, as Stefan said, I mean, I I guess that's right. Like, that is basically what Popovich said, too. Like, Popovich focused on Trump's rhetoric and didn't really get into the fact that Trump was actually racially discriminatory in his real estate business. It wasn't just the things that he said and he didn't talk about. But he used the, the words, he used the words misogyny, right? He used the words uh, sexism and homophobia. Mm-hmm. I mean, he named the the words rather than was right. just vague about it. Popovich right. was better. But I think what the Johnson thing shows is that he took a stance of, I'm just going to say these totally banal things to show what a like open-minded guy I am and we should all kind of come together. But we're at a place right now where saying that is a political stance itself and not speaking out more strongly. You can't just be like down the down the middle. Down the middle is like appeasement. <laughs> um, and all of these people, like whether it was Ernie Johnson or um, Oprah or a lot of the athletes who said, We've got to give this guy a chance. That's what pisses me off. Chappelle on SNL said, I'm going to give him a chance. He ended Mm -hmm. it in a great way, in a great twist. Like, I hope you have respect for uh, the disenfranchised because I'm going to have respect for you. And and in the same way, I hope you have respect for my people and the disenfranchised. I didn't like it when Chappelle said it. I didn't like it when Chappelle said it either. So, So then we disagree. I don't know if I want to give him a chance, but since there's no other way in a democracy but to give him a chance, I want to be vigilant. I'm not telling anyone not to be upset by it. Be upset. It's going to, he's going to have a number of bad policies, but then it's, the Oprah it's almost like we're arguing. Worst. 
The Oprah version was the yes, worst. Yes, but look at the people we're talking about. We're talking about Oprah Winfrey, who doesn't say sharp things, who is popular because of her anodyne statements. We're talking about Ernie Johnson, who, you know, he's not the one who goes out there. He's the one who reels it in from people going out there. And then when you talk about religion and when you talk about a pox on both their houses, that's going to be popular in this uh, in this fractured time. It Not only does it not surprise me, if I say that there, it's... If what would the perfect uh, media ecosystem be to not have these voices? Well, then it wouldn't reflect where America is. America is full of voices who voted for Donald Trump. So to have a version of that, and it wasn't Dave Chappelle, but and it wasn't Ernie Johnson. But, you know, it does us, I think, no good to only listen to the voices of dissent in this moment. Uh, I don't want to listen to Jeffrey Lord telling me that it's all going to be a great presidency and explaining away a lot of the sins. But perhaps on the other side, to the large number of eloquent voices of dissent, there is a voice that says it's not going to be good and we need to watch. But for our institutions and for our democracy, this is a reason why we need to go on and try to be not going to say optimistic, but let's do all we can to not just hope for the best, but to bring about the best. Well, that's a better you version know. of it. That's not what people said, that's not though. What I said. So you're basically we're having like kind of parallel but not congruent conversations here. I'm not saying that people shouldn't be allowed to say these things and it's not valuable to have people reflecting all sorts of different opinions. I'm just saying that it should not count as like banal. And okay to say, I have a lot of hope for President Trump because, like Oprah said, I saw him with Obama in the Oval Office, and that made me think everything's going to be okay. Um, And just to say, well, that's Oprah, and that's the kind of thing she says, well, that doesn't, you're, it's not that I'm I'm surprised, it's not that I'm like, surprised that she said it. I just don't agree with it. And I'm expressing that I don't agree with it. Similarly, I have different ideals for what we should be striving for. And one ideal is to not have a guy like this or specifically this running our country. But another ideal is the ideal of um, valuing the peaceful transition of power. Um, And and that's something that well, that's why Obama Johnson didn't say those words. We need Obama to say that. We don't need Ernie Johnson to say it. But but you also seem to object to the fact that both Johnson and Dave Chappelle said that something like we're all rooting for his success and uniting and leading the country. Yeah, I am. I I do not support that. I I. But Obama said that. Yeah, and I think I think Obama needs to say that because Obama is the president, and the fact that you know. He is the one who needs to be telling people that this is important to our democracy and that we need a peaceful transition. Uh, Agreeing with that, fine. Obama needs to say that as part of his job. So then if I agree with that, what does that make me? All right, here's, here's another way to put it. Trump has put on his website and said consistently what he's going to do in his first 100 days. He said in the 60 Minutes interview, he's talked about all the people that he's going to deport Immediately. And to say that you wish him success and that you wish that, you know, he comes in and does the things that he wants to do isn't based on the fact that he's already told us what he's going to do. Like to say that you hope that he does a good job, isn't that basically, if you don't want him to be president, isn't that basically just like blinkered or it's just like wish wish casting and it's just well, not being in connection with reality. But why is that any different from ever saying anything unifying about a pre- uh, any politician you didn't vote for? Right. I wish you can never wish success to anyone you didn't vote for or else you would have voted for him unless it's like two great choices that you can't even pick between. Like but you his can't version make of success a, would be you can't make, make America a, great again. And But you can't create an equivalence between Trump and other candidates that you don't vote for. And I think that's the mistake here. And I think that's what we're talking about. It's that these people with a platform on sports media are creating that equivalency for me. Ernie Johnson is saying I should pray or he prays. He's praying for Donald Trump. And that's his way of, 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 of accepting or hoping that this is all going to be fine. Charles Barkley said everything he said in the past, that's water under the bridge. I don't yeah, agree with that. That's the thing that pisses me off. And I that's think the perfect that, articulation of the bad thing to say. That we just, because he's president now and he won the election, 
we just have to pretend that everything he's said in the past and everything he said he's going to do just doesn't exist. And we just have to think for the unity of the country that we all are like pro-Trump now. And I guess I'm as as volatile and as unpredictable Charles Barkley is. It still kind of surprised me to hear that everything that Donald Trump has said before, we should just forget about and we should give him a chance. And well, I, you know, I think that it's more than fine. Ernie Johnson didn't say it well. Obama said it better. Obama gets described as, you know, he has to say it. So some version of many of Trump's stated policies are odious to me. Many of Trump's campaign, much of almost all of his campaign rhetoric is horrifying. And yet there is a universe where you could say the, I don't know, this is, this is wishful thinking, but you can wish that somehow his economic policies spur growth and perhaps the naysayers of how bad his tax policies are, you know, won't come to pass. And maybe his, um, Whatever he might, whatever foreign incursions he get us, he gets us into, won't hurt as bad as in our worst imaginations. And so this is a version of, you know, we hope that he succeeds. We hope America succeeds. You know, there, the president has such a gigantic uh, slate of things he has to accomplish that to pick out a few big things and to say he hope he succeeds does not necessarily mean that through all his agenda items, he runs roughshod over, you know, our civil liberties. I don't think it has to mean that. In general, to hope he succeeds and to hope America succeeds, we hope America's in a better place after four years than we are now. And then you could silently add, though I doubt it. And, you know, if you have a podcast, you'll explain why you doubt it every day. Well, let's let's contrast what Ernie said with his panelist, Kenny Smith, um, who was far more, I think, holistic about assessing what Donald Trump had done and what his election means and how we as presumably basketball fans should 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 examine a Trump presidency. Let's listen a little. I think the one thing is that you just can't be naive to think that anybody who voted for him is a racist or narcissist or anything other or any kind of ism. But you still have to acknowledge that he made so many of those misogynistic, racist uh, remarks and narcissistic remarks. So you have to acknowledge that. And that's what I think disheartening to the people who did not vote for him, like myself, is this disheartening because it felt it feels like he enabled the workers, workers of iniquity, the, those people who. Um, don't really understand the bigger value. And so he gave them a forum and a platform that typically they don't have. And they felt like that you lock arms with them over policy, over your moral line. And I felt that the moral line for me, it wasn't about a Republican vote or a Democratic vote for me, Ernie. Obviously it was about, he had crossed a moral line ethically that regardless of the policies that I wanted to be in place, I couldn't be locked armed with because of those things that he did. And that's where I think, you know, I've been an NBA player and a black man for a long time. And I know how to take a loss. And I know how to get up from a loss and know. But when I'm misled or I feel abused in that process, then I'm going to feel a certain way. And that's what you see the repercussions of what's going on today is the workers of inequity are locked arms with him. And he has to change that. And I'll give it to Shaq. And I think the last thing he has to change that because he has to make it inclusive. But it's very tough for him because, Shaq, I think this it's kind of I, I liken it to the guy who uh, who's a narcissist in high school and he wins the homecoming king. He really doesn't get humble after that. That was good. That was good. Yeah. Good job, Kenny. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what we listened to there, what we heard there was not somebody who is wishing Donald Trump ill or America ill because it elected Donald Trump, but somebody who's willing to acknowledge the reality of what his campaign meant and the things that he said and not just kind of brushing it off with like a two-word phrase or saying, like Charles Barkley did, that it's all water under the bridge. I guess I would be okay with it if people are said explicitly, I wish Trump well and hope that he's a good president. But all this other stuff did happen. We're not like crazy. He did say these things and he did say he was going to do these things. And that is obviously going to affect whether you think that, um, you know, it's possible for him to beat 
a good president. Yeah, and I don't think that the that the that the TNT panel would would have been assessing the outcome of this election if it weren't the election that occurred. If this was a mainstream Republican candidate and a mainstream Democratic candidate, I don't think it would have been a ten minute segment. And I think that's why it's worth talking about, and that's why you have to assess the approach that these guys take. If you're going to go and Ernie Johnson's speech got like 95 million impressions on social media. It was not an insignificant address. It healed the nation. So we want to, (laughs) we want in that kind of a, when someone has that kind of a platform, I guess what you just hope for is some rationality and some cogent analysis and some thoughtful, well-reasoned arguments. And I don't think Ernie Johnson gave us that. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, let's move on to another sport and another political segment. The Mexican and U.S. men's national soccer teams played World Cup qualifiers in Columbus, Ohio in 2001, 2005, 2009, and 2013, with the U.S. winning every one of those games by the iconic score of Dos Acero. On Friday, three days after the election of Donald Trump, The two teams played in Columbus again in the first game of the final round of qualification for the 2018 World Cup in Russia, sponsored by WikiLeaks. This time, thanks to a late goal from Rafa Marquez, Mexico won dos a uno. After the game, Marquez said that in this time of intolerance, the victory for El Tri will help Mexicans forget a little bit about what happened here in the United States. Joining us now to discuss the game and Mexico's reaction to the election is Leon Krause, who started out as a sports writer, but is now a historian and an anchor for Univision. We're talking to him by phone as he's in the airport waiting for a flight to Mexico, which is a bit on the nose, but but we'll allow it. Leon, thanks for joining us. But I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving America. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just uh, going to Mexico for 24 hours. Pleasure to be with you guys. Um, great. Well, when you get there, how much will people be talking about the game and how much will be people be talking about the election? And will those conversations be happening in the same paragraph? Well, uh, I think that the, the game the, uh, was a, a, a brief uh, moment of happiness for Mexico, a much needed moment of happiness uh, for Mexico, uh, for Mexican, Mexican soccer in, in particular. I mean, we, we had suffered our worst defeat in, in, in the whole history of Mexican soccer in official competition against Chile in the Copa America. It is a horrible 7-0. Uh, so to, to, to see the Mexican team go to Ohio and, and finally beat the United States was, was certainly a welcome result. But, uh, honestly, all eyes are on, uh, on what will happen, uh, in the United States now that, uh, you have chosen the man that you have chosen. Not you personally, but, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. I know what you mean. So before the game, the independent British newspapers described it as a unity wall. I don't think any of the players explicitly said anything, but instead of the separate team photos, both the U.S. and Mexican teams posed together. Um, Was that something that you thought was important, or is that what you took away from it? Absolutely. Uh, I thought it was a very powerful image as to the power of sport uh, in a moment like this, and especially soccer. And let me let me tell you something else. I mean, uh, I have a, an eight-year-old son who, who plays uh, here in Southern California. We, we, we crisscross the state, uh, or at least the southern part of the state, which feels like a state on its own, so large, every weekend. And I see him kick the ball around on Saturdays and Sundays and, and just share the power of sport, the unity of sport with his Hispanic uh, teammates, his African-American teammates, his uh, American teammates. And on the field, those those differences that now uh, seem to have come to the fore in American society in such a dramatic fashion simply disappear. So for the two teams to come out uh, and, and pose for the team photos, 
like that uh, was certainly a powerful message, as well as the attitude of many fans who understand with, with the Mexican fans, very respectful, and just realizing that life is, is, is more than uh, uh, political uh, yeah, tension, I would, I would say. No. Yeah, and I think what was interesting about the game and the lead-up to the game is that if you put it in the context of the historical relationship between these two fan bases, I mean, these games are, have, have traditionally been pretty virulent. Um, yes. in Mexico and to some degree in the United States as well. Um, and what we saw in the stands, I mean, a, a call by the U.S.'s biggest supporters group to tone it down, that they would not tolerate any derogatory chants. Um, I heard one puto chant on a goal kick, which was not terribly um, <laughs> good. Can't stamp that out just yet, apparently. But overall, it takes something this extreme for fans to recognize that, yeah, we care about this rivalry and we care about being nationalistic in international football, but this has managed to supersede those emotions. I, I agree with you, and I hope that Mexican fans uh, behave exactly the same way when, when Mexico hosts the United States in the, in the coming months. That would be really, really fantastic. Uh, I hope that the Mexican Federation and Mexican media uh, uh, develop a serious and smart campaign to help fans realize the, the power of, uh, of, uh, of soccer as a unifying force uh, versus the opposite, which we are, we are seeing in so, in so many other realms, right? Uh, but yes, it, it was actually quite, quite touching to see. And, and, I, and I spoke uh, with a couple of members of the Mexican national team who, whom I, I'm, I'm friendly with, and they were, of course, uh, very excited to have won, but also very emotional uh, to have taken part in, 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 in this match at this particular moment in time and to have it all turn out besides the result the way it did. So do you think that United States soccer fans are similar uh, in nationalism to Mexican soccer fans or to United States fans uh, of other sports? And I say this, I got a bunch of data points, but there's a lot of surveys that show liberals were more likely to have watched the World Cup than conservatives. There's surveys that show only 46% of uh, United States citizens have passports and most passport holders by a two to one margin preferred Hillary over Trump if you use, you know, passports as uh, a proxy for at least the players on the uh, U.S. team. I just wonder if this, if the U.S. soccer team and the U.S. soccer fans were a proxy for America or more of a, even though the match was held in Columbus, a proxy for blue state America. That's a, that's an excellent question. That's a, an excellent question. And, and since we're in the age in which stereotypes tend to come true, uh, I, I think you, you're probably you're probably right. I mean, after all, soccer, uh, if you if you look at it, is it, is not a typical American sport, quote unquote, American sport. It, it is the, the most international and diverse sport there is. It, it truly is the, the the world's sport. But I hope uh, that uh, that that's not entirely the case. I mean, when thinking of the American fan base and the way they look at soccer, I, I, I hope that uh, when you see the passion that uh, the MLS generates uh, all over America, uh, and teams are really all over America, uh, this this passion will, will translate into a better understanding of the power of, of this particular sport to, to build, honestly, uh, I would say a better world. And I don't think I'm exaggerating. So there's a really interesting piece by Sam Borden in the New York Times about players growing up along the border and having to decide whether to play for Mexico or the United States, which national team they want to represent. There are a lot of players on the U.S. national team who play in Mexico, their club uh, soccer, and the Mexican national team plays many of their games, just friendlies, in the United States. So there's all this crossover and this I think a lot of the improvement of the U.S. national team can be attributed to, um, you know, players of Mexican heritage and kind of playing a, a more like Latin American style. I mean, there's just so much connection and crossover. And I'm wondering if you now think that that's under threat, if that if, you know, Mexican fans will um, not be able to or not want to come play in the, um, you know, watch the team play in the United States if the national team will not, you know, have these tours in the U.S.? Like, what do you think some of the effects of, of Trump and Trump's America will be? 
Well, I, I, not, uh, I know that we're not in fashion uh, right now, but I'm an optimist. Um, I, I know that optimists are not in fashion, but... Uh, I could I, use I, some I, of that I, right now, actually. Well, <laughs> yes, so, so would I. Uh, but, I mean, here's my prediction. I think that FIFA uh, will and should award the 2026 World Cup to both the United States and Mexico. That's something I think that we should really hope for. It's not it's not a crazy idea. It's been talked about. The, the new heads of FIFA have talked about it. Uh, important figures in, in Mexico and I think the United States as well have talked about it. And that would be a major statement as to the again I go back to my phrase the power of soccer to bring sense to to a to a senseless situation, right? Uh, to to be able to do that would reinforce what you just described uh, uh, the, the the presence of soccer on both sides of the border, so a positive force uh, for both countries. And I again see it every single weekend with my kids, and I think that many people who are listening to this right now can can agree that that's the case. Racial lines and many other lines simply disappear on the field the way they should. So, I mean, I think that idea, the 2026 World Cup, co-hosted, why not? I think it's uh, it's risky to overstate the impact that sport can have politically. On the other hand, um, this does seem like a significant moment. And I think it's while it's risky to overstate the impact of sports, what we have here could be a bringing together of these these two soccer cultures. I think it's been in fashion in the media and in soccer communities to play up the, the differences between the United States and Mexico and the sort of rivalry, not just among the national team between the national teams, but for players and for these decisions that young soccer players have to make. So oddly, all of the hate could end up being a bridge for these soccer cultures. And that's what the United States needs. It needs Mexican soccer culture to be more deeply embedded in what the United States does. Yeah, even technically. I mean, yeah. uh, it's, it's funny, but if we could, by some act of magic, uh, we, we could bring together both the American team and the Mexican team. They both complement each other beautifully. The, the American team has, has uh, a, a certain strength the way they play in the air, for example, uh, the, 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 physic, the physical aspect of the game, the athleticism of, of the game, and then you have Mexican, uh, the Mexican style, uh, which is basically the opposite of the American style. So if we could bring them together, we could have a, a World Cup winning team. I mean, <laughs> that's, uh, that won't happen, but it goes to your point as to, as to, as to how soccer could really work in, in, in favor of uh, both soccer culture uh, in, in, on both sides of the border, and of course, the, the whole social aspect of the, of the way things are going are gonna to move now. Because I am, as much as I am optimistic when it comes to soccer, uh, I am pessimistic when it comes to most other things uh, at, the, at the current juncture of the Mexican-American relationship. Soccer NAFTA. Well, we need a better soccer NAFTA. That's exactly right. Well, soccer NAFTA. <laughs> I love it. I'm not against that. I just think it's uh, totally unrealistic. I don't think that soccer can change. I don't think soccer can change any minds. I think it reflects minds. And Mm -hmm. again, you know, I could go back. Soccer is not the bluest of blue state phenomena, but it generally is. Uh, Wall Street Journal in 2012 looked at where soccer is popular. Of the 20 states with the highest percentage of youth soccer participation, 17 voted for Obama. And with the lowest, 16 voted for Mitt Romney. And I'm sure that that became more pronounced after the election. And I just think that whatever the questions of the U.S. and Mexican national teams, it's mostly a discussion that's being held away from that typical blue-collar, downwardly mobile Trump voter who didn't notice or didn't care. Or maybe they did care. Maybe they root for the United States in uh, international competition. But we've proven that personalizing that people can vote for Trump and still personally feel sympathy for the individual uh, Mexican or maybe look at this situation and say, well, how does that have to do with my concerns about illegal Mexican immigration? All the Mexican soccer players are here legally and they're quite wealthy and they're not the problem. I don't know. I just think that this is, oh, I'm not going to say whistling past the graveyard. I don't know that it's a graveyard, but I think that soccer doesn't have the power. Most sports don't have the power to change. What they're really doing is just reflecting Mm -hmm. the realities back to us. I, I agree. Uh, you're right. I mean, we, we shouldn't be uh, overly overly romantic. Uh, and I, and, and uh, but but the truth is that uh, sport 
carries symbolism, right? The history of sport is full of this, of, of examples like that. So, uh, I, even even with racial reconciliation in in America, uh, you, you could see it in in sport and how sport uh, helped along those along those lines. So, I mean, we are just talking symbolism, but still, uh, if, if if for example, I go back to my idea of the 2026 World Cup, which uh, which I, I don't uh, exactly remember when it's going to be announced, but when it is announced, and it will be in the following four years, I'm absolutely certain of that. That could be a gesture that that could really be. That could really be something. Uh, so, I mean, here's I what know. Donald he, Trump's going to say. Agree. He's going to say we're we're going to you know get the bribes together to pay FIFA, and Mexico is going to pay it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it that, that might be the case, but I mean, who knows? Maybe we get conciliatory Trump. Uh, we, we, I think it's still up in the air what kind of Trump we're, we're getting. At least this week or this uh, this tweet, <laughs> right? Uh, next tweet might be different. Who knows? Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> it. Or maybe, or maybe, or maybe Trump. Or maybe Trump uses uh, sport as in the bread and circuses model, and I don't under I don't I don't have much confidence in FIFA to ever do the right thing. They're not taking the right. uh, Russian World Cup away, and I don't know that there is a groundswell oh, among the World Cup. Yeah, so I don't think that dictators, quasi dictators, or autocrats are ever punished by FIFA. No, yeah. on the contrary, they love them. <laughs> <laughs> <Let's>, <laughs> so, so our chances of getting the 2026 World Cup have just increased. <laughs> We should oh. exactly. We should count on Trump's support. There, there we go. We, we fix the world. <laughs> let's uh, let's finish up with um, the players on the Mexican team. Leon, you mentioned speaking to some of them after the game. I thought Rafa Marquez's words were very measured. He's obviously an incredibly uh, important sportsman in Mexico. Um, what have you heard from the players or? What have they said, you know, more publicly about the political situation? Have they been outspoken? And what do you imagine they're going to be saying and what role they'll take going forward? I'm heartened by the reaction of many of the Mexican players. I, I like the, we, we have basically two leaders in the Mexican team. One, Rafa Marquez, who is, yes, like you say, uh, uh, an exemplary sportsman and, uh, and a measured man and, uh, and a smart man. And now even... As, as you could see, I mean, he's he's driven like no other Mexican soccer player has ever been. I mean, in my opinion, he's been the best, uh, even better than Hugo Sanchez. And we could have another podcast on that if you want, because it's a big debate in Mexico. But that's what I think. I admire him beyond all other soccer players in Mexican, Mexico's uh, history. And then we have Chicharito Hernandez, who is uh, this, the young player, the young star. And he was, again, his words were very measured. He was concerned, but immediately he turned to, to, to Mexican fans and to more than fans, the, the Mexican-American population and the Hispanic population saying, well, we're with you. Uh, but there, there, was, there, was, there was no exaggeration, no uh, mistakes, honestly, in their words. They knew their place in, in the current situation and what they could and could not accomplish in this particular match. So that was another, another piece of good news to come out of, uh, of the game, right? Leon Krause is a historian. He's former sports writer, I guess. Uh, no, you, once a sports writer, always a sports writer. <laughs> always a sports writer. And he's a podcaster. Where can people listen to your podcast? I, I have a podcast called uh, Epicentro, Epicentro in Spanish. That's on iTunes. And I, I'm, I'm really, really grateful to have been with you, with you guys today. Big fan. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls and Trump owned the New Jersey Generals, mm -hmm. the USFL. That didn't go very well. Did it, Stefan? <laughs> it did not. It's a preview for your country. What's going to happen? Uh, you were you just uh, found this little uh, general's item yeah. that you wanted to share with the people. Yeah. Lisa Edelstein, actress, <laughs> house, girlfriend's guide to divorce. She was a cheerleader for the generals at age 16. She uh, said on Huffington Post last year that Trump treated the cheerleaders like hookers, made them go to bars and stand there. With their uniforms. With their uniforms, in their uniforms, um, of course. Yeah. 
Dr. Lisa Cuddy from House. Without, without perhaps having the fullest understanding of how a hooker is treated. But we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll let that uh, we'll allow slide. It. They uh, walked yeah. out. She organized the cheerleaders, though. Teenage labor activism against Donald Trump, one of many pro-union activities against Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Mike, what is your Dr. Lisa Cuddy? Gophers are cute, harmless creatures to some. Aha, that's true. But how will it relate to what I have to say? Well, on this occasion of uh, uh, an afterball influenced by a USFL team, let us talk about another football league that is played by professionals in North America, the CFL, the Canadian Football League. And we recently passed on a 10th anniversary of a signature Canadian Football League occurrence, although this happened November 5th, 2006. So I missed it, maybe because there was something else going on at the exact 10th anniversary date. Uh, Gainer the Gopher, who is the mascot of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, was doing his mascotty gophery things. Did you know that Gainer is named Gainer? Because that's an anagram of Regina. 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 Got it. Nailed yeah. it. Yeah. And has been entertaining writers fans ever since he was named Gainer in 1977. Entertaining Rough Rider fans, but not Calgary Stampeder fans. Because when the CFL playoffs came around, the Calgary Stampeders banned Gainer from McMahon Stadium. They thought that his antics were too much and would, quote, take away from their mascot, Ralph the Dog. And so, who got involved besides legions of anti-Ralph the Dog fans? Could also be seen as pro-Gainer the Gopher fans. It was the Saskatchewan legislature where they railed against Calgary's decision. Quote, it's a sad day in Saskatchewan, Glenn Hagel, the province's culture, youth, and recreation minister said in the legislative assembly. Imagine our shock and dismay at our opponent's display of bad blood and poor sportsmanship. Well, eventually the Stampeders semi-relented. They let Gaynor in the stadium. He was not allowed on the field, but in the ultimate act of justice, the Rough Riders beat, that's the Rough Riders without a space in their name, the Rough Riders beat the Stampeders on that November 2006 day. They would go on to lose in the next round to the BC Lions. No word on if Leo the Lion was impeded by Gaynor's antics. Stefan, what is your Dr. Lisa Cuddy? Nate Duncan hosts a daily NBA podcast called Dunked On. I follow him on Twitter. He's a smart guy, knowledgeable on election night. Like so many other Americans, Duncan was fired up and ready to tweet. At 7.13 p.m. Eastern, as the networks were calling Indiana and Kentucky for Trump and Vermont for Clinton, Duncan offered his first take of the evening. That's not a good call on Millsap. Sure looked like a foul was coming live, but he barely made contact with Thompson. Yes, as the rest of us were settling in to watch Wolf Blitzer shout the results one vote at a time, Duncan was live tweeting the Hawks-Cavs game. It did not take long for his 49,000 followers to notice. You bloody legend, someone wrote at 7.15. Literally the only non-election tweet in my timeline. Duncan wrote back, get ready for a lot more. At 7.30, polls closed in North Carolina and Ohio. Duncan wrote, outstanding hustle from Hardaway to get back and foil LeBron's fast break layup. Florida and Pennsylvania were ready for analysis at eight. Cavs four for 17 on threes, getting their usual looks. Around nine, Trump was up 137 to 104 in the Electoral College, and Duncan had what seemed like a parallel question. This ridiculous shooting from three by Wiggins can't continue, can it? Oh, it could. North Carolina was slowly turning red. There wouldn't be enough votes in Broward to reverse Florida. The lead in Ohio was growing. Then Clinton became the Hawks. Hawks better keep scoring and hoping for misses, Duncan wrote at 914. You need to stop this tonight, dude, a follower replied. Why's that, Duncan wrote back. Fate of the free world in the balance. The election is very close right now, replied Duncan. Good thing it's not my job to cover that. The Cavs lost and then Ohio fell at 1021 and Duncan tweeted a minute later. No Chandler and Chris starting for Phoenix and they're down 2210 already. North Carolina went down at 11.07. Duncan switched to Mavs Lakers. Nice work by Justin Anderson. Lefty jabbed left, wrong-footed Clarkson, and went right for the dunk. A follower commented, you are doing a good and important thing right now. 
Tuesday passed into Wednesday and the fate of the Republic was sealed. And one follower screamed at Duncan, how are you doing this? To which he replied in words that could have comforted a nation. Are you not planning on going to work tomorrow? Word was spreading about Duncan's patriotic act. And at 1241, he directly addressed the nation earning 466 likes or about 460 more than his usual tweets. Do your thing, dude. World has to keep spinning, one follower wrote. America runs on Duncan, said another. We need you more than ever, said a third. At 1.30, Duncan, who lives on the West Coast, I should point out, wrote that support for his tweeting was outpolling criticism by a 15 to 1 margin. Clinton called Trump to concede at 2.44. Ten minutes later, Duncan was assessing Denver, Portland. Fareed just got caught in a live ball situation because Portland pushed it. You have to switch there. Just great play. At 3.01 a.m. Eastern, 12.01 Pacific, three minutes before Pennsylvania and Wisconsin were officially declared for Trump, Duncan posted his 105th or so election night tweet, teasing his next podcast, and I assume went to bed. Lest you think that Duncan was unconcerned about the results of the election, he did at one point reply to a tweet about Canada's immigration website crashing. Quote, my girlfriend's Canadian passport did occur to me tonight, he said. You can follow Nate Duncan, everyone, at Nate Duncan NBA. Josh, what's your Dr. Lisa Cuddy? <laughs> you like that. <laughs> I do. On Saturday night, uh, Brent Musburger called the first half of the Texas A&M Ole Miss game by himself, which was kind of an odd gesture by ESPN in honor of Vin Scully because Vin Scully calls the Dodgers games by himself and uh, Musburger had just won a uh, a broadcasting award named after Vin Scully. So to pay tribute to the great baseball broadcaster like Jesse Palmer, get out of here. We're just going to have Brent uh, describing this game on his own because Texas A&M and Ole Miss is the right time to honor the great Vin Scully. Brent Musburger is 77 years old. He has been calling games for ABC and ESPN for uh, 25 years, a little more than 25 years. And Vern Lundquist gets like lots of names wrong. Everybody loves Vern. But Brent Musburger at his... I know a guy, I know a guy who doesn't. Yeah. Brent Musburger <laughs> at his advanced age is like super duper sharp and has uh, nonetheless been exiled to the SEC network, which people other than than me don't really watch. But the guy gets like every player right. He's like totally like... On the injuries, he knows which guy guy just got hurt. He is like the play-by-play man that you want for your game because he is just uh, he's he's still got it. The dude still has his uh, his fastball. But um, here's another thing about Brent Musburger. Before he was a sportscaster, he was a newspaper columnist, and he wrote a column for the Chicago American in 1968 that is particularly notorious and seems relevant. Now, in the age of Kaepernick and Trump, that column was headlined, Bizarre Protest by Smith, Carlos Tarnishes Medals. And it was resurrected and reprinted in full by Dave Zirin on the nation's website in 2012. That column begins, you are looking live at a horrible column by Brent Musburger. The (laughs) column begins, Tommy Smith and John Carlos must be labeled unimaginative blokes if they can't come up with a stronger and more effective protest than the one they staged here last night during the Olympic medal ceremony, honoring their accomplishments in the 200-meter run. Smith and Carlos looked like a couple of black-skinned stormtroopers holding aloft their black-globed hands during the playing of the national anthem. They sprinkled their symbolism with black track shoes and black scarves and black power medals. It's destined to go down as the most unsubtle demonstration in the history of protest. But you've got to give Smith and Carlos credit for one thing. They knew how to deliver whatever it was they were trying to deliver on international television, thus ensuring maximum embarrassment for the country that is picking up the tab for their room and board here in Mexico City. One gets a little tired of having the United States run down by athletes who are enjoying themselves at the expense of their country. Musburger continued his critique by saying, protesting and working constructively against racism in the United States is one thing, but airing one's dirty clothing before the entire world 
during a fun and games tournament was no more than a juvenile gesture by a couple of athletes who should have known better. Stefan's wagging his finger. Zyron's reprint of the article was accompanied by a plea for Musburger to apologize to Smith and Carlos, something which he has never done. As Barry Pachesky noted on Deadspin at the time, Musburger did address his column when HBO released a documentary in 1999 about the Mexico City Olympics. Here's Richard Sandemir in 1999 of the New York Times. Musburger, now with ABC Sports, said yesterday that his words were a bit harsh, yet questioned the value of the glove fist salute. Did it improve anything, he asked? Then added, Smith and Carlos aside, I object to using the Olympic awards stand to make a political statement. Brent Musburger, maybe don't ask him how he feels about Donald Trump. I don't know if we want to know the answer to that question. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup Listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Shane Monahan. Our producer this week is Afim Shapiro. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. <laughs>